Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Thy Strong Word. I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa. We're reading the entire Bible together, book by book, chapter by chapter. And I'm so excited. We are just, every chapter is just so cool. We're going through the book of Revelation. We've seen so many things throughout this past year, from the Gospel of John through his letters, looked at the apocalyptic literature in Daniel and in Zechariah. And so here we are, and we're really getting to soak this stuff up now. And and today is just another one of these really cool days where you're really glad that we've read stuff like Zechariah, where you had, that's right, different colored horses, right? So some of these similar sorts of images, of course, there's the, the talk of the beasts still, right? All this stuff that seems to be coming back from Daniel and Zechariah um, here again. Uh, but the thing that's that's new, it's interesting here in this chapter six of Revelation, you got this sequence of seven seals, you know, and so we've been seeing the number seven over and over again. But here it's a it's a sequence one after the next. Right. Uh, and this is one where, I mean, people really can go go along with this stuff. Right. In terms of, you know, the full moon becomes like blood. And what does that represent? And what's this going to happen? Are these all future events or are these all things that have already happened? So a lot of important questions um, in the midst of things that uh, maybe even seem a little bit familiar, new applications. And joining us today, we have returning, we got Pastor Nate Ruback. He's pastor at Grace Lutheran Chapel in St. Louis, Missouri. Good morning, brother. Good to have you back with us. Thank you for having me. Yep. Great morning today. The sun is shining outside. It is a beautiful day to be in God's Word, that is for sure. Amen. Amen. And so we're looking here at Revelation chapter six, and uh, you know, so we're, we're several chapters in. We've been kind of, you know, getting our heads wrapped around this, um, you know, what kind of genre this is, you know, what what that means. But I, I mean, Revelation six here, you know, I, I feel like this is one of these chapters that uh, people are maybe more familiar with when they read Revelation. Like people think about the different colored horses and the and the riders and the and the seven seals. It just it just seems like something where there have been so many people who have gone in so many different directions with this stuff, right? You know, I so I am a big uh, I am a big lover of art, photography, and all this. And, and what constantly comes to my mind when when we hear the words in Revelation six is this picture of the four horsemen. I mean, we've seen it depicted yeah. in artwork. We've seen it come out in in movies in in culture that you come across somebody and you. you tell them, or what do you hear about the four horsemen, it automatically seems to conjure up an image that people begin to be familiar. The difficult part is, is what people are familiar with aren't always what is being revealed or understood of what's actually happening um, within these words of Revelation 6. But, you know, that that vision or that picture of the four horsemen um, is kind of a stark picture of of what's to come. I, I, I'll, I'll never forget. I see. I haven't actually seen this, but I, I saw it in my mind's eye here. Uh, I had a professor back in seminary who was like, you know, when you think about it, it really is pretty striking that we we uh, decorate children's rooms with like Noah's Ark and give them like Ark mobiles. I mean, like, oh sure, a, an event of mass yeah. destruction and death and judgment. I mean, you don't see anyone who gives their kids a a mobile of like the the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And just <laughs> no, or that that the, the image that carries of like that. the four yeah, horsemen like spinning around like a toddler crib or something just uh, hasn't left me. So, um, but these visuals, right? <laughs> sure. 
Uh, so, so yeah, yeah. What, what, what do you make of it though? Right. I mean, there's just, there are just so many images and these images are powerful because they do stick with you, but you know, um, to what, to what end. Right. So that's, yeah, that'll be the focus of today. Uh, so we want to make sure we, uh, you know, it's only, it's only going to be like 17 verses. It's not the longest chapter in Revelation by any stretch, but it's just, it's, this is one of these denser ones. Certainly. Yeah. I think there's so much that's caught up in the imagery in the, you know, the vibrant imagery of what's described that although it's only 17 verses, we could spend weeks just on, you know, one of the horses, one of the, the images that happens uh, within those, really the six seals that are, that are opened for us in chapter right. six. Um, right. Every one of them is just very rich in what it's trying to show I think the difficulty is whenever you read any portion of Revelation, especially this chapter, um, there's so many interpretations, and there's so yeah. many um, the different directions uh, from from angles of, of different church bodies and different uh, faith traditions that, right. that that lend a different meaning to what's being depicted. R- right. Yeah. No. There re- there really really are, and I think that sometimes the the other. You know, I think in the midst of that, especially with our 21st century sensibilities, it's really easy then to say like, oh, well, you know, kind of everybody has their own interpretation. It's kind of whatever you think, or sometimes we'll put it in like pious terms, like however the spirit leads you or something like that, right? Um, and, and then sometimes we, we kind of just give up and we say like, well, how can anyone really be sure what any of this stuff means, right? Sure. So but, we, we simply fall into the sake of, yeah. well, since I cannot fully understand it, then anybody can bring their own you know, meaning and interpretation into it. I did a quick right. Google search on meaning of of uh, Revelation six, and it is amazing. Oh. <laughs> I mean, you get hundreds of different angles and views, and some that are very uh, literal into this is exactly what's going to happen. Into well, we don't really know, but it might be. You know, the cross right. the board understandings of uh, of the vision that's happening. You know, doesn't until we really look at to understanding who God is through those Old Testament um, apocalyptic writings and, and prophetic writings, we don't begin. You, you really step back and see who the focus is, who's doing the work, where this is all coming from. Um, you read anything without any understanding or, or previous context, you can put any interpretation on it that you want. Yeah, that's right. Right. Yeah. And and I think that, that that's really well said, because if, if you if you do just take it out of context, right, it can feel that way. But when you put these things in context, I, I feel like really there really aren't that many degrees of freedom, actually. And when you put it in the context, there's really not actually that many ways you really can make it fit. Uh, which is which is actually very very helpful, and you know, as, as you were just saying, you know, focusing on Christ, um, and focusing especially in the depiction in chapter five, right? That it's a de- it's a depiction of him as victorious, right? Him as having conquered, him as uh, having the right um, to open the seals, right? Like when you put it in that context, uh, it really it narrows the possible range of meanings, and so I think I think we are going to see that um, it's it's not as um, you know, uh, hopeless of a cause here to try to make firm sense of things. So, mm-hmm. but uh, without any further ado, let's go ahead and turn to the task text as we do so. Would you say a prayer for us and for everyone listening along today? Absolutely. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. It is a great and glorious day to live in the grace and forgiveness that you give to us every day. We thank you for the opportunity to be in your word. We pray that uh, 
you would give us a measure of your spirit that we can see what you are teaching and leading us, uh, ultimately pointing us back to your son, Jesus, who has died and has risen and lives victorious so that we would have forgiveness in life. Bless us in this time. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, let's just read the first verse and kind of um, we can then pause then and kind of remember, okay, now hang on, like where, where is, how does this link up with things? So here's the first verse of Revelation chapter six. Now, I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. All right, so before we get to what he sees then, right? Okay, so here's here's the lamb actually on the verge of opening the seven seals. Um, one of the four living creatures is announcing this. Okay, so these are all figures that have been introduced so far. Um, how is this fitting in with chapter five and the rest of it? So I think the way and purposefully the way that six starts out is is obviously identifying who has the authority to be opening up the scrolls. We see that it's, that it isn't John, it is the, the Lamb. It is in Christ's authority that these things are being revealed, um, which then leads us to under whose authority certain um, punishments and, and things that come, uh, whose authority they're coming from. Um, I think it's, it's important to know, well, the importance is always found in the details, whether it's one word or right. five verses, you know, in... in to identify that it, that it's physically the Lamb, that it is Jesus Christ who has the authority to open these seals, sets out the pretense of of whose authority in which perspective this is. Everything that will be revealed in the following verses comes from. Um, so I think that's the first point we can kind of take away from verse one. Mm-hmm. I think the other point is uh, when we hear the the voice of the four living creatures. Um, you know, we often see those as as angels that have a specific task, you know, there's, there's always that, that God often not always uses angels to be able to be a, a messenger or a person to purvey um, a, a divine message from God, um, sometimes good, sometimes bad. And yet we hear yet again, even though through Christ's actions, he's using his messengers to kind of draw attention. Okay, come on, let's listen, pay attention to what's going to happen. That's right. As as impressive or as even terrifying as the messengers are, and, and you see that throughout the New Testament or, or the Old Testament, right? Everyone, everyone, when they see an angel, seems to fear for their life, right? But oh, it, sure. it's it's never it's never to draw attention to themselves, right? It's it's because it's it reminds me of Moses, right? When Moses comes down from the mountain, like why? Well, why is he shining, right? Well, because he's been in the presence of God, and that's and that's the point. Right. That when you see someone speaking like thunder, it's like, well, it's because uh, he was standing in the presence of the one who you know is uh, the source of all the thunder who created it. Right. I mean, so it's just as you were saying, directing us to this is the person he's speaking for. This is the person who who he's been um, attending. Right. Whose presence he's been standing in. So that's that's well said. So here we are. You know the lamb. The lamb is beginning to open these seven seals, right? Like on this um, this scroll or um, you know codex or whatever. You know, probably scroll as we were saying before. All right. So here we go. The first uh, the first seal is opened. Verse two. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. 
when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red. All right, let's just pause right there. So we're getting in, if, if we if we skim down, like, we'll see that we're going to get two other horses yet. So we're beginning this sequence. We've got two horses uh, right off the bat, and they're coming pretty rapid fire, right? That description of, of the white horse, I mean, that was just like a sentence. And then it was like, and here's the, here's the second horse all of a sudden, right? So is, this yeah. is why it's so dense, right? But th this, uh, this white horse, right? Okay. What are, what, what are we to, what are we to make of this? And, um, and, and I know that like, I'm thinking about it cause we just read Zechariah right before this, like maybe, maybe we read this part even, uh, like a month ago, but like we had, um, white and red horses back there. So anyways, your thoughts, what, what are we to make of this? So I, I think out of any of the four horses, I think the white horse is the one that probably, uh, has the most difficulty in trying to understand or see what is being meant. And, and like you said, it's what one verse long. And I looked yeah. and behold a white horse and Strider had a bow and the crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. So I think there's so many different interpretations that have had that are, that have come about just with the white horse right. um, that, you know, there are those who will, will claim that this is, that this is Christ. There are those who then yeah. uh, will, will say that, no, it's not Christ. It's more of a picture of the Antichrist. And then there's those that will fall under, well, no, it's a picture or, or a symbol for what um, happens within that context. So mm -hmm. um, I struggle with this being uh, the white horse in the writer being Christ um, for yeah. a couple reasons. Um, the, the first being as the horses come out, you're, like you said, it's rapid fire. They're all out at once. It's not as if they're, they fall in a line and there's one leading another. So you could suppose that, it's, that they're all kind of on the equal playing field. They're all kind of right. coming out within a split second of each other, yep. um, which, which draws concern to me as, okay, yes, we see Christ as the one who does triumph, who is our king, who is clothed in the purity of his own, of his own righteousness, but then what follows doesn't, doesn't fit into the picture of what Christ then brings. Also, right. the other one little piece, uh, again, that often, uh, you know, Scripture is very purposeful, that in the, even the little details, things are revealed, is this understanding that the rider had a bow. Uh, mm. There isn't times in which, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, in any place in Scripture in which Christ is ever depicted, or the Lamb... Um, or the Son of God ever depicted with a bow. Often we see yeah. um, with a sword, right. uh, especially with the, the second coming that, that he, he wields a sword. Is that enough to, bake, to bank an entire argument on? I, I, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, Dr. Lewis Brighton well, would, would say that yeah, that this that this image is more of an encapsulation of of what is happening within our earthly life. So every one of the horses depicts something that is happening to the world, to people, to God's people. And uh, that point of view is is that, that that this image of of one who is obviously in power, one who has 
uh, the, the force of a bow, one who wears a crown, is one who comes to reign through any means necessary. Right. Yeah. No, no. And, and I think I really appreciate like, so your, your thoughts here. I mean, there's a, there's a lot, a lot here that we need to really kind of stop and, and make sure that we're tracking with. Um, I mean, first of all, the, the last thing you just said, right. You used a, a present tense, a present progressive, right? Like this is the stuff that's like happening um, to God's people. Right. And, and I think that that's uh, that's actually a really important point to be stopping and making here. It is really easy throughout revelation to, to say like, oh, well, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's revelation, it's apocalypse, right? Apocalypse means the end of the world, right? Well, we've already sure. talked about that. No, it doesn't mean that. It means re- revelation. It means re- revealing or it means uh, unveiling, right? It's a spiritual perspective on what's going on now or even what's happened in the past. So, um, well, yeah, and, and with act- that, what may happen in the future? Well, that's true. That's right. That's right. That's right. Because the especially especially, you know, in, in that kind of Hebrew way of looking at it, that, that the future is not necessarily like, something else it's just kind of the part of the present that you that you don't see yet almost right Mm so yeah so the the line's kind of fuzzy but so it can go into the future but by no means right does because it's prophecy or because it's a vision does that necessarily mean it's the future so taking this as you know what what happened in the past or um, what's going on right now is is more than fair uh to look at as a possibility um to what you were saying then earlier about the identification of, okay, is this, is this Christ or not? Uh, I would really agree with you that there's, there's, it's very hard to take this as symbolized for Christ. And I know that we talked about this in, in um, Zechariah, right? That it's very easy for us to look at the colors and the materials and to just kind of impose our own cultural sensibilities, right? Because, you know, and we, and we saw this back in Zechariah, right? Like, you know, when there was like bronze, for example, we might say like, oh, bronze, like, you know, it's like third best, right? Like it's gold, it would be better, right? But no, I mean, that's, that's, that's our kind of, you know, like when, when did we start giving out bronze medals for the Olympics? Like not that long ago (laughs) (laughs) when you look at, you know, the history of things. So it's like, you can't just say like, oh, this is the white rider, right? This is like your, 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 your knight, your hero riding on the white horse. Like that is our own you know, kind of like, you know, Shrek to fairy tale sensibility, not necessarily what they're getting at from a Hebrew perspective, right? So you can't just go and and jump that. And as you were saying, there's lots of arguments against it, including the fact that he has a bow um, when he's depicted, as you were mentioning in in the first chapter, right? It's having a two-edged sword coming from his mouth and Mm -hmm. um, elsewhere, there's there's a sword idea. Um, And I think that your other point too about them all coming out in sequence I mean, it really is putting all four of them on the same level. I mean, or, you know, if anything, the last one seems to actually be the most prominent. So it really seems problematic. You know, we, we've seen this again and again, whether it was like the the four different groups of chariots in Zechariah or whether it was the four beasts in Daniel or whether it was the four sections of the mm-hmm. of the statue in Daniel. Right. They all are on equal terms. They're all meant to be, um, you know, a succession of earthly powers or, or, you know, spiritual powers that are subservient to God, but not one of them representing God himself. So, I mean, like on the balance, very hard to identify this um, as Christ. I mean, in agreement with what Brighton says. 
Yeah, and, you know, I read in one commentator, they, they pointed out, you know, just simply in Roman history, or, or even in history period, is you often see those who are in rule, whether they be kings, whether they be um, dictators, whatever, that, that color white is often used as a sense of power. It's not, you know, we see it, you know, in, in the words of that, that flows from our baptism, that we are that we are cleansed and made white again, but that color has also been used um, as a sense of power, of, of tyrannical rule, of I'm the guy, you're the people under me, um, follow me. It was, it was a status, a hierarchy-type uh, symbol in color. It was a power, you know, and that, that depicts also then the crown. Um, right. That, that, there is, that there is rule over, mm-hmm. over this world that sometimes comes by force. And will often put people into uh, a sense of uh, uh, entrapment, being enslaved to something, being under somebody else's control. Right. Yeah, I think that's that's well said. We forget. We sometimes we think to ourselves like, well, hey, I thought royalty was that was like purple or, you know, that that kind of like indigo color. Right. Well, well I mean, sure, because that was rare. Right. It was a very rare um, dye, very expensive to make. But it's also very hard and expensive to, to bleach things super, super white in the ancient world, right? I mean, it's it's really easy to kind of have something that sort of looks like, a, I don't know, some kind of beigey brown sort of thing, right? Or to even dye it red, that's pretty easy to do, um, even among common people. But to really go all out and make something just spotless white, I mean, you're talking about, you, you got to have resources to make something that clean. You know, you, th- you think of like the Rolls Royce and like the guys working on it with the white gloves, right? I mean, like to, to have something look immaculately clean, that's that's money, that's power, right? And so just it complements everything you're saying, right? Whether it's a crown or whether it's a, you know, mounted horseman, that's not something that happened very often in the ancient world. I mean, that requires so much training, to be able to train people um, to, to ride and and then simultaneously be be shooting, you know, archers like mounted on horseback. I mean, you're talking about just lots of power, lots of resources. I, I do agree that it's a symbol of of power, authority, and wealth. And I, I don't think you need to really get any more specific than that. Than just that we we see this it happens again and again um, in this life that. Uh, those with with lots of resources and with lots of power, they go and they assert themselves and they conquer. This is what happens um, present, past, and future all the time. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think with the purpose of how verse two ends, that he came to conquer, or came out conquering and to conquer, it, it was not to bring peace and redemption. No, it was to gain control. Um, it, it God does not did not come out to you know, just run over people or mow people over with a with a lawnmower. No, whoever this is in verse two and on the white horse has a path of ruling and 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 controlling mankind. The pretenses are not what you That's know right. Christ came to as redeem. Right. Well, yeah, and it's um, it is interesting to consider that that you do have the word conquer there, and of course we have seen that actually applied several times to to Christ and even to the church. Right back in chapter five, uh, the root of David has conquered. Uh, you know, back in the the letters to the seven churches. Um, you know, the one who I mean, what was that was a language here? Like uh, he's called the the one who conquers. 
I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne. So it's this language that that we are conquerors, right, in this sense, right? But as you were pointing out, well, how is he conquering though, right? Is he conquering with his word and with his self-sacrifice, right, in the kingdom of heaven? No, he's, he's conquering with mounted horsemen and material wealth and, and military power, right? So, I mean, that's how he's doing this. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I do think that everything here... Um, it's it's actually fairly clear, and we I think maybe later we can stop and consider. Okay, do these colors have any coordination with what we read before in Zechariah? But uh, we gotta keep moving here because we only sure. have read uh, two and a half verses. So <laughs> back back to the text here. <clears throat> Let's go ahead and take a look at these um, these next two. I think might be best to go ahead and take them together. So here's verse three. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. Okay, so we got two more horses here, and in case it seemed obvious what the second one represented, then we got a third one, and we got like denarii and measurements of wheat and barley here, so just when you thought that maybe it was easy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> maybe but, not so but much. May yeah, yeah, right. But so only only like half a minute here, just... Uh, just briefly, may, maybe summarize maybe what the second horse is about. So I, I think that the second one is what follows in the rank of what comes with the white horse in terms of tyranny. Um, it, it comes as a result of tyranny is is bloodshed. Um, right. It, it is the, it, we know that people will die. People will begin to take one another's life. Uh, death will will begin to, to, to reign because... Um, Peace doesn't exist under tyrannical rule. It just it, it just right. doesn't, uh, which moves then into the third horse. Where then under under tyranny, under war and conflict, then comes what begins to be the scarcity of goods, uh, famine, yes. pestilence, um, people not having or being able to afford what is what is what is needed uh, on a daily basis, right. uh, just to sustain well, basic life. Yes, and, 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 hold, and hold that thought, because I want to talk more about this third one, but we got to go into our break here. But everybody, hang on. We're looking at Revelation chapter 6 here on Thy Strong Word, and we'll be right back. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. 
Welcome back, everybody, to Thy Strong Word. I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa. We're looking at Revelation chapter 6 today, and we're joined by our guest, Pastor Nate Ruback, pastor of Grace Lutheran Chapel in St. Louis, Missouri. We were just looking at these second and third writers, right? The, the horsemen of the apocalypse, right? Looking here at Revelation chapter 6, and, and we were saying how, yeah, there's I mean, it's, there's so much to this. It's a visual, right? It's striking. It, it's something that stays with you thinking about it, right? Um, this is one of the few places in actually the New Testament where you have the mention of color anywhere, right? <laughs> like, uh, especially when you get to the last verse, like, I think it's like the only place I think where that color is like mentioned in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so it's colorful. It's striking, right? But what is it, what does it mean? And we were just talking about this. Well, when you look at it in context, um, you know, it, it's actually a lot less um, just kind of like, oh, we'll never figure it out. It's open to interpretation um, than, than people think. It, it seems to actually be a little bit more straightforward. Um, so let's go back to this. Um, but I do want to make sure before I forget here, uh, we are getting to look at these juicy chapters of Revelation, thanks to the support of our producers, of course, but also our underwriters at the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. You can check out their website at lhfmissions.org. Thank you, Lutheran Heritage Foundation, for your support. We are looking here at these second and third writers. And brother, you were just saying how the, the second writer, you know, it's kind of the one if like if people were going to like guess, it's like, this is the one, okay, we, we can probably figure this out. Uh, you know, bright red. Hmm. Okay. That that's okay. Uh, taking, taking peace from the earth, given a great sword, people should slay one another. It, it sort of interprets itself, right? I mean, it's, it's, you know, bloodshed. Right. And of course, as you were saying, yeah. if you're going to assert worldly authority, right. How do you keep this tyrannical rule? Well, you you have to kill people. This is what's happened again and again and again, right? Whether sure. it's um you, you know through uh, just like uh, the military or through the police state or whatever the case is, right? You, you don't maintain power unless it's through the sword, right? You know, like like Paul says, you know, he uh, he does not wield the sword um, without uh, you know in vain w- without meaning, right? So that that's the one that's maybe the most straightforward. But then this is kind of an interesting turn. You were starting to introduce this. The third horseman, right? Uh, mm-hmm. We got a black horse, and there's the idea you were saying of scarcity. So, so yeah, help help unpack that just a little bit more with these like scales and this mention of like a denarius and all this. Well, I think what happens, um, and you mentioned it, you know, under tyrannical rule, it, it brings war. How do you control people? You control people by by you know making them fearful of their life by taking life. Uh, you know, the flip side of that is, is then how are, how are things overthrown? Well, they're overthrown by war and upheaval and, and revolt. But the other way that you begin to control people that you are uh, in control uh, or that you rule over is by making their daily necessities a little bit scarce. You make it difficult that they have to rely on the ruler, uh, whether they want to or not. And I think that's what we begin to see with the, with the third horse. Um, is it, it brings up imagery of, of just the, the daily things that are needed that people would, would need or have to purchase to sustain the basic needs of life um, begin to be so scarce that they're not affordable. Um, right. the, you know, it talks about the denarius um, for a, a quart of wheat or three quarts of barley. Um, it's important to understand that you know, a, a denarius is a day's wage, and, right. I, and I got thinking about that. If I had to take my day's wage to buy enough grain to um, uh, 
to have to put bread on my family's table right. is pretty desperate. And I, you know, I, I think back into the, the days of the Great Depression where, you know, things had gotten so expensive and so uh, scarce that literally people were were simply starving to death. Um, it's it is right. interesting, and I and I struggled with this a little bit, where it talks then about uh, do not harm the oil and wine, and I, I had to yeah. do a little bit of research into that. And, and a commentator had written that um, that often uh, that part of the world, you know, they they relied on having to bring in grain, so grain was a commodity that was imported, and yet you have wine and you have oil, olive oil that that seems to be more readily available. So the understanding mm-hmm. that there are some things that that will be there, but the basic thing like grain to sustain your life is something that has become so scarce that 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 it's either unattainable or people are just dying because they don't have it. Right. Yeah. No. That, that's that's well said. And, and it's um it, it is important to to stop and to consider you know what was ancient daily life like. And a lot of it was you had these staple crops, right? These staple grains like 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 wheat and barley that you would just, you know, boil in, in a pot. Right. And, and, there, and there you go. Right. You can just eat that. Um, you don't even have to, like, you know, uh, process it and try to make bread out of it, though. I mean, you certainly could, because um, when you're eating that every single day, you, you try doing different things with it. Right. <laughs> it's like mm-hmm. it's like when I when I think back, you know, just um, I mean, I don't I don't know, like with with, with my background and like um, like, you know, like Mexican cuisine, it's like all the different arrangements of like, you know, bean, beans and tortillas. Right. I mean, it's uh, <laughs> we we got, you know, like there's there's rice and beans and beans and rice and rice and beans and a tortilla and, you know, just like all the different qu- combinations of it. Right. So like potato. Yeah. So. Yeah, 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 or yeah. Potato. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So there's those kind of like just, you know, basic things. Oil and wine, though, were counted among those basic things. I mean, it was actually in the Mediterranean world. Um, I mean, this is why it's called the Mediterranean diet, right? Because like every day you would have olive oil. I mean, kind of with everything. <laughs> um, and and same thing with wine. Like, I mean, it wouldn't necessarily be like, you know, your 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 strong fancy you know vintage you know uh, you know in the in the bottle right but like so, some kind of you know m- pretty pretty mild you know not that strong a wine that's just there on the table uh, but a very common thing every day um, in in that kind of ancient Mediterranean diet so to your point it's like yeah some things are there we're we're, we're going to get by but man it's going to be hard though when you got to spend your whole day's wage on just a quart of wheat. I mean, like you think about it, your, your take home pay for the whole day just gets you the quart of wheat and that's it. I mean, you're, uh, mm-hmm. you're not exactly, you know, uh, accumulating a nest egg or something. This is your, you are just barely getting by and, and really you're, you're kind of having your resources drained overall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it, 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 again, it puts in perspective the, the balance of what's happening between those who are ruling and those who are under control. Um, you have those who, you know, if they are in power, if they're the ones who are ruling, if they're the ones that can afford to keep their, their garments white, well, they're going to yep. be the ones that can afford this stuff. So yep. suddenly you have a, you have a, a balance between uh, those who have and those who have not, those who don't have to measure and those who have to ration. Uh, it talks, I, I think it really gives us the image that this is a time of scarcity, not of overabundance. I think about the times of famine uh, spoken about in the Old Testament that, you know, you literally moved because that's where the food was. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, just just think of Ruth. I mean, that was the story, right? <laughs> right? Like there was no there was no bread in the house of bread, and so they had to move. Um, sure. Well, yeah, sir. Joseph's brothers coming back to him because yeah, they had right. nothing. Yeah, know? that's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, and and I think that you know, and I like the word though you, that you use scarcity though, because it doesn't actually say anywhere like famine, right? Which which I think is is uh is perhaps significant because you don't have to have like a famine or something for this condition to exist. I mean, I, I mean, just, I mean, I don't know, even now I, I kind of, I kind of blush to even make the comparison given how insanely wealthy we are when you consider the history of the world and even the current state of things, but just consider even like, you know, recent history in the United States. Um, you know, people have described maybe the economy of like the last say like 10 years or so, right. As, as being really hard for a lot of people in a, in a time when, the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer, right? Sure. Um, now, again, um, kind of that disclaimer er, er, said earlier in mind, right? There is this situation where even though the the whole overall economy is, yeah, like it's it's booming and the stock market's looking great, the the lived reality of a lot of people is like it, it seems like my paycheck is shrinking. It goes it, every day; it goes uh, less and less far, right? Mm-hmm. Like it, it buys less and less. You know, buying power is shrinking and. I don't think you got to read this black horse as some kind of dystopian literature, right? Like this is like a, you know, brave new world kind of thing or something like that. Um, Or 1984. I think this is just kind of actually, again, what naturally happens when you got people who are in power at the top, Um, Mm -hmm. they're going to have policies that naturally are going to have themselves get richer and the poor are going to get poorer. That's what happens all the time. That's not some yeah. kind of weird, you know, dystopian fantasy or something like that. And like, oh, like, you know, maybe the, the world will get that bad, like the Hunger Games. I mean, this is really just kind sure. of the, the natural course of things all the all the time, I think. And, and so, uh, again, kind of seeing all of this is these are just kind of the natural consequences of well, I mean, what sinful men do when they try to seize power. Yeah, I think maybe a better word to, to put this into perspective is is an understanding or an image of inequity. Yeah. Um, that that there is this there there's not a balance between all, but there That's is right. there there is an inequity or a inequality to what is happening in the world. Right. And I think all of these things go to what we both said early on is that, you know, this is not something that we look as future events. No, this stuff is happening now. Yep. You know, the, 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 the whole idea that, that what is being revealed in Revelation isn't a future event. No, it's happening here, and it has happened in the past. Um, ever more reason that we must be on guard and be ready to give, you know, a, a, an account to what we believe and, and to be ready with a witness of, and testimony of our faith. Not when we see Jesus come back. That, that's too late. It's right. been amongst all of this stuff now. Yeah, no, that, that's that's well said. I mean, like all this stuff, right? And, and it's just, you know, like like so many of the things that, um, you know, e- even the things that like the prophets were talking about, right? Like w- when they were, were having these these great visions, you know, they're, they're very often talking about stuff that was going on, like right, right then and there. And I mean, and how often did the prophets, I mean, we saw this when we were looking at Isaiah, right? Or, um, or, or Zechariah, right? Or, or Haggai. How often do they talk about inequality and people who are cheating people and use, people who are using um, weighted scales, right? That were, that were not fair, right? I mean, there, there's the scale, right? Inequality, um, inequity, I mean, injustice, right? Um, cheating people, I mean, that's that's the name of the game. There, there's there's going to be 
uh, power is going to be maintained through violence and it's going to be maintained through through cheating people is, I mean, really just kind of the, the simplest way to put it. So, yeah, we, we see these things going on um, all the time. And it's there's always an opportunity then uh, to be witnessing our faith and putting our faith into action um, and to serve uh, those who need us, our neighbors. Then we come to this last of the four horsemen, but it's uh, not the last of the, the six seals we're looking at. Cause as you mentioned, we only have six in this chapter. We, we got to wait two chapters. Uh, the seventh seal doesn't For happen seven. until chapter eight, but uh, okay, let's go ahead and take a look at the fourth seal and the fourth uh, horseman here. All right. So here's verse seven. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Okay, so yeah. like, like I was uh, suggesting a little bit, almost the most prominent in, in some ways, I mean, just in terms of you have a very long description. I mean, it's at least as long as the description of the black horse, but I mean, just the, the terms that it's put in are really, I mean, they're just so striking, right? I mean, death and Hades, we actually have a name, right? We didn't, we didn't have a name for the writers um, in any, any other cases, but here, this one actually gets a name and um, try to think of more prominent, scary sounding names than, than death and Hades. So yeah, this, this fourth one just in some ways seems to, top the other three well i think it, it's it's not so much as as it's topping as it may be a culmination of what's happening in the other three so mm-hmm. through mm-hmm. through tyranny through bloodshed through inequity now you have what what comes to fruition is just simply death right. um dr dr brighton and i and i found this very interesting reading part of his commentary instead of it saying uh, as we translate it, or as the ESV has it, as a pale horse, he describes it as a ghostly green horse. Mm. And and to me, it's like that greenish colored fog, you know, stuff that sits on the water that that just has kind of a, you know, have you ever been around a stagnant pond and it just has a, a uh, reeking smell and it yeah. it's anything but beautiful. It mm. is is this picture of what this this fourth horse looks like that that simply as it says right. brings death it brings the ultimate demise of what happens through what is happening in our life of how we how we control how we're under control how we then uh, lives are taken how we take lives and how inequity simply will just end up with death whether it's through the right. sword hunger um, whatever it might be it's kind of the culminating factor of all of it Right. Really not yeah, no, I, I like, yeah, I like, I like that way of putting it, a culmination, right? That in, in the end, what is all of this add up to, right? It adds up to, to death. Right. And, and I think that that's, that's profound in, in a, in a few ways, but like, uh, you know, I, I think of Paul, right. When he says, you know, um, you know, I think, I think it was in Romans, right. Where he says like, so death reigned from Adam until Moses, right. Even, even, even before the law was given, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there's there's this sense in which um, the the upshot, right, of of just sin in this life is that really uh, death is the one 
that's in control. Death is the one that's in power, mm -hmm. you know, death, death reigns. And so, um, you know, it, even though it takes all these different forms, right, whether it's, you know, just, um, you know, a, a tyrannical, um, you know, uh, force, uh, hegemony, hegemony, right? Or it's, um, you know, bloodshed and war, or whether it's, you know, um, you know, this in inequality, right? this cheating and, and fleecing of the poor, right? Whatever it is, it all adds up to really like, it's just, this is the, the cycle and the, the power of death that's, that's in control. And, uh, I, I do, I gotta say, I mean, I do, I do like the image, right. Of, um, you know, that kind of maybe sickly green, right. That kind of like, kind of like just like rotting, like makes you sick to your stomach mm -hmm. kind of green. Right. Um, because it is actually the case that when you, when you look at the, at the word in Greek, you have chloros. Um, and that's the word that you get like from like chlorophyll, right? Like it's green, like the green in plants, right? So it, it could be something um, unnatural, um, you know, not green horse, like, uh, you know, the really like pretty one that was uh, taking Dorothy and her friends around the Emerald City, sure. but <laughs> not, not that kind of green horse, right? Uh, but, but it, you know, perhaps something sickly. I, I do think that that is, uh, I mean, it's a, certainly an intriguing possibility. Um, it, it is interesting, though, because the color, though, um, is as much as, you know, it is related to other words that we've drawn from it. It can in Greek just kind of mean something like a grayish horse, right? And uh, the the one thing that's that's just appealing to me about that is if you have red, white, black, and gray horses, well, those are the same colors as the horses that we saw back in Zechariah, Zechariah right? When yeah. we when we when we were looking at, I think it was well, it was chapter six, right? We had the the chariot groups, and there was a chariot with black horses, one with white horses, um, one with red horses, and then one with we you know we're looking at you know dappled horses, I and mean, we had to look that up, right? Sure. But you know, that that grayishness that they get when they're transitioning, like say from like a black to a white or something like that. Mm -hmm. So it would be interesting if this is actually like the same um, assortment of colors which we saw that back in Zechariah, those colors seem to represent um, just the four different directions on the compass that um, on, on a certain level, this is the stuff that happens everywhere. This is the stuff that's always going on in every place. Is there really a place on earth that isn't under the control of, of tyranny and violence and um, you know inequality and death? Uh, no, it's... It's rampant to the four corners of the earth. Well, and it's and it's and it's something that everybody uh, on different levels and in different experiences in different parts of the world experience it in a different way. But if you yeah. look back, you you think about. I mean, even in our lives, as blessed as we are at the country we live in, there, like you said, there are times in which we feel that we are oppressed by those who have been put in power, or we that there is a need over what is able to be bought. Um, and again. Death has no, um, death is just an absolute, right? Yeah. It, it doesn't pick favorites. Um, it, it's just a reality. Um, so when you put it in the context, yes, that this, that this stretches to every part of the earth, it, that includes everybody. Death is going to have an effect on every living being on our planet. Right. Um, and you can't escape from it. Um, 
Well, so that that said, one last question before we move on to the second half of the chapter here, because we we do need to actually move on to the second half of the chapter, don't we? <laughs> yeah. We um, so, so if this is the stuff that's going on everywhere, affecting everybody, why does it say um, as uh, of death in Hades, they were given authority over a fourth of the earth? What's what's that about? Well, I think it's it's the fact that that this that that this is still ongoing. It's it's fourth of the earth. You know, it's not complete. Um, it, it didn't. It doesn't say that it had uh, the power was given to him over the entire earth as if it was already completed. Well, no. There's three fourths of the remnant of the earth that that still is affected. It has not come to completion, um, right. which I think is ever more evidence the fact that these are times that are being spoken about now, not what has happened in the past, not as yet what to come, but it's in progression, but not yet complete. Right. Well, yeah, and I think that's I think that's exactly the way I take it. That like this is stuff that's in motion, right? And what happened in Zechariah, right? Well, the, those four different teams they went off in different directions, right? And, and I think that's kind of the idea that these are the things that are affecting everyone all the time, but everywhere, regardless of where they are, it's kind of maybe kind of more obviously experiencing maybe one of them than the other, right? You know, mm-hmm. like there, there's some parts of the world that like yeah, the big thing going on there is um is like war, a civil war, right? Um, there's some parts of the earth that the big thing going on right now is, um, you know, like a you know, coronavirus, you know, <laughs> not, I mean, like, sure. so black, sure. you know, death or the pale one, right? Death, right? Um, there's some parts of the world where, I mean, inequality is really like the thing that's on everyone's mind, right? And everyone's like, you know, <laughs> talking about revolution or something. So yeah, it's kind of like, you know, these, these four writers get sent out over the earth and maybe one rider is sort of more prominent in a given spot than another, but really they're kind of just circling all over the planet. This is the stuff that's always going on. And I think that the, the kind of then the scary thing is to consider as they are going out in Zechariah, where are they going from? They're going from the temple we saw. And in fact, these are the four um, horsemen that are being given authority by ultimately God. And so what do we make make of that? Yeah, I think it, it comes down to permissive authority. Um, you know, not that, that God is out with an evil finger that, you know, is pointing and punishing direct directly for one's actions. But we do know that, that God permissively allows things to happen uh, in order to accomplish his good. So I think it's, it, it's that fine line of, is God causing these things? Right. To what does he permissively allow in order to uh, accomplish, um, you know, what is then revealed later on in Revelation and what is often revealed, you know, through the purposes of our life. And if we look at it that from that perspective, I mean, as a pastor, you know very well that there are people that come into our office and with the questions of, of why God? Uh, right. Why did my child have to die? Why do I have cancer? Why is God punishing me? Well, are those actions direct punishments from God, or are they a a, 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 a way in which God is is using right a, kind of as you're saying allowing aspect, permitting I, allowing yeah it's a, right, allowing right. happening right, not that's right it's a direct action um, yeah that, and that's, that's, hard that's helpful to struggle and with. That, Yes. Oh, no, no, that's right. And just, just because we can categorize it differently doesn't, doesn't take away the, dif- the difficulty and the pain of it, right? I mean, that's certainly what the book of Job's all about, right? Like, even when you explain it as thoroughly as you can, like, it's still hard and there's just humility and in the face of it. And all we can really cry out is just, Lord, have mercy. Um, 
but yes, um, that's that's a that's a helpful distinction. And I think actually back in Zechariah eight, we had Pastor Worth kind of talking about that consequent versus antecedent will. If anyone wants to go back and look at the podcast, um, only a couple of minutes left here. Let's read the last uh, the second half of the chapter and just maybe kind of make a couple closing remarks here as we wrap up the chapter. So here's verse. Uh, let's see, verse nine. Then okay. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? All right. So, uh, I mean, just the, the, the next two just kind of happen in rapid succession here. Oh, only got maybe half, half a minute, literally, um, but just uh, not enough time to really kind of look at this stuff in detail. It's fine. We looked at the four horsemen, which needed some attention, but just kind of overall zooming out here. Um, your, your thoughts on this is, you know, the wrath of the lamb. Well, I think what what ultimately comes is you see those who have been who who, are, who have been martyred, who have been who have died in the Lord, who are then covered in His righteousness, um, and you begin to see the wrath and the kind of the cosmic powers that are spewn out as as end times, uh, as that final day of judgment comes. The beauty for us as believers is that day is not a day of judgment, but rather a day of of redemption. Um, and while those flee out of fear, there are those who who are are taken in the Lord, who simply are a day to rejoice. Um, verse 17: The great day of wrath has come. Who could stand? Simple answer is that no one can. But in Christ, what what we see on that day of judgment is not the end. That there is uh, much like those those who have been martyred before us. We too right. will be within the altar of the Lamb, clothed in His righteousness. That's right. Yeah, you're right. Right, just like our baptismal right, the, the white garments, so that we may stand without fear, right on that day of judgment. Thank you so much, brother. Appreciate Absolutely. it. We looked Thank at you. a really difficult yeah. chapter, but I think we made a lot of good sense out of it. Um, God bless you, and looking forward to having you on again really soon. God bless you too. Thank you very much. Thank you, brother. Everybody, that was Pastor Nate Ruback, pastor at Grace Lutheran Chapel in St. Louis, Missouri. Moving on to Revelation chapter 7. we got to get on to that seventh seal, right? Until next time, everybody, I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa. Peace. You've been listening to Thy Strong Word, produced by the Lutheran Church Missouri Senate Office of National Mission in cooperation with Worldwide KFUO, the official broadcast ministry of the LCMS. Your support is vital for this program to continue. You can make a gift safe, secure, and easily online at kfuo.org. Thank you for listening and supporting Thy Strong Word.